You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles, the projectionist asks Micha. I'm here, as usual, with Yitzchak Kolakowski. Yitzchak, you know, you brought up the point to me that so many television sitcoms were, in a way, based on films. I know one of your favorites, which you've talked about here on this platform, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, uh, was actually based on a film, a movie. I'm not sure if Dwayne Hickman was the star, that's possibly was, but at that time, you know, television in the in the mid fifties, late fifties, sixties was looking for a a hook to sort of make their sitcom work. And if you could take a popular film, why not? Mash was a, t- a movie first before it was a TV show, right? Right. So Mash was very similar. All you need to do is, you know, replicate that. Now, of course, part of what they did, you know, you know, the the the, the producers and writers of Mash, in a way blunted much of the sort of like very satirical and really pushing the envelope type of type of jokes. You know, it was an R-rated film. Right. Uh, so, you know, they had to, in a way, sort of like you know, give in to some of the sensualness and, and, and implications and, and double entendres, but they were able to get away with it by toning it down. You know, again, when it's a sort of a slice of life, that doesn't necessarily end with uh, the death of a character. You know, when we take a look at, you know, the classic films of the 30s and 40s that where we have, we take a certain character and we take them through uh, their struggle and either through their happy ending or their death, you really, it's hard to make a television series from Little Caesar, a television series out of Scarface. It'll be hard, similar. I'll mention the movie that you love more than anything, almost like the Rebunner show of the King Kong. It'll be hard to make a television series about King Kong. Mighty right. Joe Young, you could probably do it, but, but, right. but, but, but King Kong, you'd have a hard time. Because it ends, you know, here's your story. We go there, we find Kong, we bring him back. And of course, Kong dies. So what are you going to do? You can't have a television series where you bring him back. But there was enough about, there were enough films that have enough, uh, open that, oh, this might be a project that we can now. And of course, these television series usually, of course, cast sometimes an unknown or sometimes someone else that might sort of replicate, uh, the character on film. Uh, sometimes they could get some of the original actors from the film, like in, in Dobie Gillis. 
it was it was but I'm sure that they probably, you know, were able to use some of the original cast from the film. You talk about MASH. I guess you have to add to this genre of uh, The Odd Couple. Now, The Odd Couple, of course, is based on a Neil Simon play. So it, it's hard to say that. But I, I think part of the reason why the idea sprung that it was that we could turn this into a television series was because of the success of the Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau film that was extremely popular. And even though the film sort of ends like the play does with Felix moving out, there's no reason why we can't imagine a scenario where he doesn't move out of the apartment. And we start pretty much at the same place where the play slash movie began, but take it to a different direction using characters that were in the play. And some of them show up, of course, in the first season of The Odd Couple. But The Odd Couple actually, in many people's minds, really gave us the best Oscar and Felix we had, you know, again, I think the odd couple was able because it took that basic dynamic of the slob and the fuss budget and was able to work on it. Again, obviously, you, you a, a show runs for seven or eight or 10 years like the odd couple or MASH. You're going to run out of ideas. MASH, of course, the ultimate inanity is that the Korean War at lasts three years and the show is on for 12 years or whatever, how many years it is. So you have, you know, you, you have Alan Alda, uh, in the beginning of uh, playing Hawkeye, uh, looking like an old man by the time supposedly the Korean War is over. But again, the inanity of, wasn't just the, the fact that the cast kept on changing with David Ogden Steers and others is that it lasted for so long. Like, how are we supposed to understand that this is happening? Right. Uh, it's supposed to be based on something in the real world. But, you know, but again, people still kept on coming back to it to the point that it, MASH's last episode was considered the, the great event that everybody had to see. Um, yeah. It seems like people should have stopped watching MASH way before that. I think we should also mention before we get to what our main, uh, you know, the, the courses, which is, I think, going to be a lot less juicy than people expect. I think we should also mention the fact that in the 30s and 40s, uh, there were these films that were sort of like television series, whether they were Philo Vance or Mr. Moto or Charlie Chan. Bondi and Dagwood. Yes, the- exactly. We had Dagwood, Bondi, and, or, or Torchy Blaine. Before television, you know, they would produce these every couple of months. And, you know, you could almost have, uh, they could come out, you know, Andy Hardy. Andy Hardy, of course. These were all... But once the world of television was able to give you a story every week or so, Hollywood shied away from this. I'm not talking about the the sequels, which is a whole different uh, discussion that we could talk about. I'm talking about these type of films where they take the same characters and they revisit them in some sort of other domestic situation. Hollywood abdicated that those types of films because they realized that was going to be the province of television and television production. And they wound up, you know, having a new life in television, meaning that the Blondie and Dagwood film series almost was, you know, kind of like Little Rascals or the Three Stooges that they were, that these things were, were a new life on television. And right, like right. The- and that's where I know, that's where I know about the Mr. Moto and Charlie Chan series because they were shown on late night TV. We've talked about on this forum about the the golden age of the 1950s and the teleplays that were written by Rod Serling and others that were turned into films, sometimes more successful than the original source and sometimes not. So, you know, there was clearly a lot of, you know, it was there was there was it, it went both ways. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, uh, Armis Brooks started as a radio show, then went to television. And after the television run ended, 
they made a movie that, that just told the whole story of her life, you know, right, right from scratch. It wasn't, you know, when, when I thought of it, I thought, oh, we're going to, we're going to see all the characters already developed the way we know. No, they went through, it was, they were assuming uh, when they made that movie that you, you, you had no idea who these characters were, even though they'd been popular for, for over a decade, maybe 15 years already, that, that they, these characters were popular and they just retold the story and, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. same thing, you know, later on, you know, all these different movies that, you know, the Star Trek films, uh, you know. And, okay, and then the- we have something else that occurred and that started in the late 70s, 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. going even into today, where you have movies based on successful television programs. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you say, Star Trek, of course, you know, is based on the extreme popularity of the reruns of the Star Trek original series. There was this call for creating uh, these big films that came out, bringing them back the original cast. But really, we could even, uh, you know, talk about other films. Uh, you know, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, uh, you know, scored a, a, a tremendous career achievement in the future, which is, of course, based on the 1960s David Jansen program. And there have been you know, Starsky and Hutch and the Dukes of Hazard has been, uh, so many, uh, you know, I spy. And, and, and again, many of these films have fallen flat. Uh, part of it is, of course, that they wanted to mine the nostalgia desire of the people who had the money to pay for these films and say, yeah, here, here's a film based on your favorite TV show when you were a kid. And this doesn't even deal with Yitzchak, the TV movies that were based, the one-shot TV movies like Return to Gilligan's Island or something like that, that were based on the long-running series. Many, many of those, the, the, the Return right. to Mayberry and the... Right. And the- Leave it to Beaver and right. So, and these were sort of like television productions. They weren't really shown in movie houses, but they were a different repackaging, trying to reimagine and put in ninety minutes or so uh, the essence of what had been a five, six, or seven or eight year run on a program, which of course wasn't you weren't always able to do. I also mentioned in this regard, I think a very interesting version of a television. A series based on a movie, and that is the the Cohen Brothers masterpiece Fargo, which spawned an FX series that really didn't even have any of the same characters in it, but tried to capture the same sort of strange, bizarre, eerie, frightening mood that's in Fargo and the comedic undertones, and then creating stories that were inspired by Fargo. Yeah, the, the, the hits and the misses, you know, like the. the... Planet of the Apes. They, it only ran for I think what eleven episodes, something like that. They tried to make a. I think there were almost more Planet of the Apes movies. Than yes, I think so. Movies, so. I think so. Uh, we speak without notes, without preparation, just from uh, the gobbledygook and and mass of total <laughs> unimportant <laughs> facts that are in, that are in our brains. But you, for some reason, were inspired by what I think is one of the all-time great Hollywood films, which is, of course, uh, the 1939's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. A television series was tried to be concocted out of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I was unaware of it. You knew about it. You knew about the fact that it was shown that some of those episodes are available on YouTube. And you watched one of them, the one that features incredibly. Oh, I I can't imagine Harpo Marx ever have been, been in the original film, but somehow Harpo Marx was in this film, and in the James Stewart character, this you know this fresh faced, 
innocent who gets pushed into Washington, but there are other forces that are trying to push him around and he has to find his voice and stand up for the great American ideal. They came up with Fess Parker as the actor. I'll tell you when I, when I noticed that, I realized that I, at least even though the, the TV show is kind of silly and it, it does kind of fall flat, but nonetheless, thinking of it in retrospect, Fess Parker really represents how that character is written more than how Jimmy Stewart played it. Meaning Jimmy Stewart, of course, was masterful in how he played it, but he played it as Jimmy Stewart. He didn't play it as how the the character, as he is written, was much more of a dead. In other words, Jefferson Smith in the original screenplay was meant to be a scoutmaster, a big outdoors 4-H type of guy. Um, Right. Fess Parker, because of his history with Davy Crockett and the fact that he's just 6'6 from Fort Worth, Texas, meant that he was more that character than Jimmy Stewart presented himself. That's that's how I feel it, meaning Jimmy Stewart made it his own. I'm not complaining at all about Jimmy Stewart. I think I think that what he did with the character was much better than how I don't think the film would be as memorable if if Fess Parker was in the film. Well, well, of course, well, you can't even mention them in the same breath. It's like, and I'm going to talk about Fess Parker because uh, in a couple of minutes, but obviously Fess Parker does not have Stewart's range. There's no way Fess Parker could have ever stood up and collapsed the way Jimmy Stewart did uh, during the, um, during the filibuster. There's no way Fess Parker could have ever brought off that filibuster scene. In fact, there is this, and I'll mention where Fess Parker did something similar in, in, in his Davy Crockett days. But clearly television, they weren't looking for Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart was not going to be, was not, he didn't, he didn't feel he was over the hill to the point that he needed to be in a television series. The premise, the, the, the 70s, that, that he had the Jimmy Stewart show. Yes, again, by that time, again, somebody pushed him into it. But, you know, w- w- having Fess Parker, and again, was setting the stage here, Fess Parker had done uh, Davy Crockett. He was discovered by the Disney people in one of your favorite movies, Them. He played a small part in Them, where he played a police officer, a highway patrolman uh, that is reporting about the giant ants that are surrounding the, that he was surrounded by. And the producers somehow were struck. People had told him, why don't you get James Arness to play, uh, was the star of them, right? Of them to play, uh, Davy Crockett. But they were actually felt that Fess Parker, maybe they could get him for cheaper, but they actually felt that Fess Parker was someone who would actually fit the bill more. Uh, they're both big guys. They're both six six or so. But there's something about Fess Parker's freshness that they felt uh, made him the person they wanted for Davy Crockett. Now, again, what Disney was after was something completely different. Walt Disney and his genius realized television's power the fact through uncle milty and others everybody was buying televisions what he wanted was people to get off of their couches and be able to spend the money to go to california to visit his amusement parks and he was right he wanted to use the type of creative imagination that went into his into his animated films and he wanted to bring that to a ride bring that to an experience and he realized the way to do that was to constantly push the fact that this 
amusement park was going to be out there, and it would have different areas, different themes. It was a theme park. It wasn't an amusement park. It was a theme park. It was based on a vision, and Disneyland was the land, and it had Adventureland, and it had Futureland, and it also had Frontierland. And in Frontierland, Disney felt he was going to create, he was actually enough to invest the money into making color cinemascope, color films that, of course, they would be shown on television where nobody had color, but he would make them in color and he would have these films in his, in his vault, but they would be films that would be made like prestige television is today. It was not like the one, one held camera. It was way above anything, even like uh, of that, that Lucille Ball was doing in I Love Lucy. These were on a movie scale type of television programs. He would insert them sporadically week by week into the slot that ABC gave him on Sunday nights. And over a period of 1955 and 1956, he and his producers, the director by Norman Foster, who we mentioned a number of weeks ago and kissed the blood off my hands, a protege of Orson Welles, they were able to create this very beautifully shot. I've never seen Tennessee shot as beautiful, the Davy Crockett story. And it was basically done in three 30-minute films that were shown throughout the, the the late fall and winter of 1955 and 1956, leading to the opening of Disney World in 1956. However, there was uh, what Disney didn't realize, that these movies, these television movies, as they were, these half-hour films were so well done, and they uh, were able to place Fess Parker who, again, his acting range might not have been great, but that 30-minute area within the small screen, he was perfect. And he was this American hero. He really, in a way, stood for, in the 1950s, the great frontier, that while everybody was talking politics, even the great war hero Eisenhower was getting enmeshed in the difficulties of the Cold War and the complexities of geopolitics, here we had a story of someone who fifed on the the generals, somebody who was able to cut to the chase, somebody of the good old American know-how, and it didn't hurt by the fact that he was from the South. I think for years, uh, Southerners were portrayed in the 1920s and 30s in many of the films, some of them which I've uh, recommended here to you, as bumpkins, as idiots, as people. They never got the accents right anyway. The only thing they knew is they were in the hills and they had no, uh, they had very little manners and they were just people to stay away from. And they were still in a way of being shunned uh, by the loss of the Civil War. Gone with the Wind represented, I think in many ways, uh, and that's why the film is so verboten today, because in a way, it seems to extol the old Southern ways. But these stories didn't go back to the old South. They went back to the pre-antebellum South, and they had a Southern character aided and abetted by his best friend, played by Buddy Epson, who also compiled, he sang songs and told stories, and was some of the person who helped create the myth of Davy Crockett. And this was a phenomena. The Southerners loved it. The kids loved it. Every every kid had a had the coonskin had a coonskin cap. cap, sure. And everyone wanted the buckskin, the coonskin cap. This was in a way much bigger than even uh, what Walt had planned. Yeah, it did bring people to Disneyland, but people wanted more of of Davy Crockett. 
I mean, I know my father was, was, you know, and I think, you know, every boy from his age, you know, he was born in 1954 and he was the Davy Crockett. That was it. And the Alamo was something that, you but know, even though was, the film came out when he was a little child, remember Disney had its platform to be able to rerun the old shows. Right. Disney owned the property and they actually packaged together the three half hour episodes into a movie, which you can see now on Disney plus. And it is a beautifully shot film, as I said. And it, it seems like three episodes of TV put together, but it's still quite enjoyable to watch. You can see Buddy Epson dancing a little bit. Uh, and uh, again, it doesn't really do justice to the drama of what the Alamo is about. But Fess Parker, you know, is clearly the star from beginning to end. You know, whether whether he was working for Disney or not, Disney owned his movie, the movie that he was in, that they made for him, and they kept on showing it. And it was shown not only in, in the ABC iteration of the Walt Disney show, but also when it went to NBC, which is where I saw it when I was a kid every Sunday night. And, you know, I knew Uncle Walt as well. I was waiting for him to come talk to me and tell me about what movies were going to be coming out. Um, and part of what they would do is, again, keep on showing Zorro and many of the other Disney creations that they had made in the 50s that they would just keep on showing it in the 1960s, sometimes uh, some of their their feature films or pieces of their feature films or half of their feature films. And this put this kept Davy Crockett in people's minds. So that's why uh, it, it seemed like a smart idea to get Fess Parker. Now, why doesn't it work, though? That's why it's a smart idea to get Fess Parker to be in this character, this Jefferson Smith character, sort of this modern day uh, Davy Crockett. Why doesn't it work on on uh, in the television series? I can see what they're doing. It was enjoyable. It wasn't, it wasn't painful to watch, but it was just, it just didn't click. I, I, the the episode that I watched, the whole reason I think that it made it to YouTube was because it was some kind of a, a Marx Brothers archive. And like you mentioned that, that Harpo was in this, in this particular episode, although Leo Gorsi, another favorite of mine was a a guest star in another episode. So they had different guest stars every week, which also, seemed to be some kind of an appeal again i think jimmy stewart was better than the characters this was i still i think fess parker was perfect for this character but that the character wasn't wasn't as great without without it being jimmy stewart what would have been the drama of each half hour that he would would, have been and that's why it's a sitcom and that's the other thing is that you took a very serious dramatic film and turn it into to a, a, a comedy it was it, it, it that maybe is also what what fell flat meaning like you know you have i, I guess part of it was that you know you, you didn't have dvds you didn't have streaming or vhs tapes it's not like people could watch this movie whenever they wanted it's whenever it happened to be shown on tv and so therefore you know they could just make this goofy sitcom with a with a theme song mr smith goes to washington and just like what what it does it's so incongruent i think if it if it existed on its own without the shadow of the film i I don't think it would have been that well remembered either but it would have been maybe something that would might have had a little bit more staying power this this the fascinating thing to me was how kennedy was a character in this in this film meaning he was the president at the time and even though they don't show him, but you hear a voice of someone, you know, imitating Kennedy. And, and even though they don't mention Kennedy by name, they they make a, a statement at one point because the, this particular episode, uh, Smith, he wants to go eat lunch. He goes to this fancy restaurant and uh, 
they were like, oh, we'll, we'll sit you. And he said, well, I don't want to go in front of other people. And he said, well, they all want big tables. There's a little table there. You could sit there. And uh, they're like, what do you want to eat? We have all this fancy food. And he's like, I just want a peanut butter sandwich. And they're like, you know, we don't, we don't have that on the menu, but we'll make it for you, Mr. Senator. And they're like, but do you mind if this other fellow sits with you? He's like, no, go ahead. So this Frenchman comes in, doesn't speak any English. The Frenchman indicates the waiter who understands enough French. He wants a real American food. So uh, he asks the he asks Smith, you know, who's a real American, what what should what should he eat? He said, well, he should have chili. He he says, well, what's that? He's like, you know, beans. He's like, how do you say, you know, legume? Oh, legume, wee oui, wee oui, wee. Oui. So he serves, and he can't stand, you know, it's a, a you know, a kind of slapstick thing that it's too spicy. He can't stand it. So he's drinking the wine, and he's drinking milk. And he's trying to get rid of. So he winds up, he the Frenchman winds up eating the sandwich. Meanwhile, people the paparazzi around see that Smith is sitting with this famous concert pianist, uh, whatever, uh, Pierre Lefranc, something like that. So then he gets a call from Mrs. Kennedy, from, from Jackie Kennedy, saying, you know, we want this Pierre Lefranc to come play at, at, in the White House. So he said, well, I, he, he hangs up the phone. He's like, I don't even know Pierre Lefranc. Who is he? And then his wife said, oh, he's a great concert pianist. And, and then so then he says... Uh, uh, it, part of the discussion, though, is like what kind of food is going to be served there at this at this musical event. So he's like, "Oh, I'm sure there's going to be some stew." And he's like, well, "And his, his Smith's wife kind of looks like Mary Tyler Moore. I don't remember who was playing Smith's wife." She said, "Who who is this? Uh, what do you mean uh, a stew? They're not going to serve stew at the White House." He said, "Sure, we got an Irish president." going to sh- serve an irish stew he said yeah but his wife is french she's she, she's going to be doing the cooking you know it's not <laughs> <I see. laughs> so then so then he shows up at at the at the at this lefran at his hotel room and before he gets there lefran is talking he's sitting there with harpo marx and he's telling him you know let's go to the nightclub and pick up some girls and whatever so he leaves and 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 marx is about to follow him and Smith knocks on the door, thinking that Harpo Marx, who's playing himself, it's not that he's playing this character. At the end of the episode, it's, it's clear this is Harpo Marx. He he says, you know, he's trying to say some words in French. I so like other words, the, 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 the comedy is that somehow Fess Parker as Jefferson Smith is somehow, because of the sort of mistaken identity shtick, somehow thinks that Harpo is this great French concert pianist. Yeah, so then he brings Harpo to the White House, and uh, and 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 the and the, the the actual pianist he he shows up because he read in the newspaper that he's supposed to be there, and he shows up, and they're like, "No, he's already inside. You're not him." They don't let him in. We don't find out what happens to him. And Marx does his whole shtick. First, he does Plays a the funny, harp. First, he does a funny piano routine, and he pretends that he hurt his hand, and then he plays the harp. And then uh, Kennedy, you know, you don't see his face. It's kind of like uh, Larry David playing George Steinbrenner. He he turns to Smith and he's like, it's so great that you got Harpo Marx to come do this. This is a real great American, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> right. Maybe they should maybe they should have served some gefilte fish and, and kugel because you had a Jewish guy there, Harpo Marx. So you have to have uh, you have to have everything there. Obviously, Harpo doesn't talk in the film and in, in the show because he never he never talked. That was he was able to uh, keep his film identity um, uh, inviolate. So it sounds like a pretty funny show. But for some reason, it doesn't it, it's 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 
it, you felt that it didn't go too many places. I, I would say from the way you're describing it, it's in, it's interesting because, uh, you know, there was this wave of hope when Kennedy became president. Uh, I mentioned before that uh, th- there was a desire uh, to go back to good old American values because people were scared about things in the Eisenhower years. There was a sense that maybe Kennedy could make things right. There was something about his how photogenic he was, uh, how glamorous Jackie O was, that somehow everybody wanted a little piece of him, and then maybe the world could be better. And maybe that's part of what they they thought, that there was a, an interest in politics. W- what seems to me to be the, the major uh, difference, other than Jimmy Stewart, is that, that Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is an indictment on politics. And it sounds like this is mildly making fun of politics, but actually, in a way, appreciating the politicians it isn't like you know house of cards or these uh, programs that we have today where everybody is trying to backstab everyone else Uh, there's a sense that we live in a great country and we're being led by this wonderfully uh, movie star like president who interacts with everyone And, and again part of the power of why mr smith goes to washington is that power is always corrupting and there's always these money people behind it and uh, this sitcom didn't want to go that far it just wanted to take a sort of a i guess a hick out of water and make him just not understand what was going on in washington although washington well, itself is it seemed like he he understood well enough but he was just kind of he he didn't he didn't care he just wanted to do his own thing and he wasn't going to get involved with the he, he's not being played as a dummy he, you know it, it shows that you know he knows enough basic french that he can try to to say you know a few words here and there with, so, you know, so so i guess the producers really had a hard time articulating what they wanted this to be and maybe that's part of the reason it failed look look i i think part of again we have to go back to the fest parker persona i think you know part of it is that once you get pigeonholed as a certain character People don't want to see you in another garb. And uh, I think that that really explains why two years later, you know, NBC, our mutual friend Tom Shabilla informed me that NBC for years was trying to get the rights from Disney uh, to create a Davy Crockett program because they figured, you know, he's still so popular. Let us do it if you don't want to do it. And Disney refused. So what NBC did was they could get a hold of Fess Parker and they went and they discovered someone who had lived also from Tennessee from a little bit of an earlier era, a little more in the revolutionary era, which was Daniel Boone. And Daniel Boone also was a, a great frontiersman. They were able to create pretty much the same character. Uh, they had to set it in a different uh, historical uh, era, the revolutionary era, instead of the era of Andrew Jackson in the beginning of the of the 19th century. But as Tom said to me, they wanted him to have a coonskin cap. They wanted him to have the buckskins. So basically, this was their way, and Fess Parker could do Davy Crockett again, but call himself Daniel Boone. And both of these programs had, uh, interestingly enough, they had top 40 singles. You know, this was a period that, of course, the Beatles and the Stones, and even in the 50s, when Davy Crockett's song was hitting the top of the charts. This was the time you had Buddy Holly and Elvis and 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 many of the other uh, beginnings of rock and roll. But still, both of these Davy Crockett movies and many, many movies, so to speak, and the Daniel Boone uh, television series, they both featured this, you know, these, this, this, this song that was on everybody's lips. When I was growing up, I knew the Daniel Boone song by heart, and I hadn't seen one episode of it. 
know, I was I was five years old and everybody was singing. Daniel Boone was a man, was a big man. And he fought for America to make all America free from the coonskin top, coonskin cap on the top of his head to the heel of his rawhide shoes. The rippingest, fryingest, fightingest man the frontier ever knew. I never saw one episode, but I knew the song and I can still sing it from 50 something, 55 years ago. I mean, even even, you know. 30, 40 years later, growing up, I, I knew Davy, Davy Crockett, King, King of the, of the Wild Frontier. Frontier. Right. But did you know Daniel Boone? You did not. I did not know the Daniel Boone song. No, I I, okay. I think I might have heard it, but we we knew the Davy Crockett song. And then, and obviously, Mickey Katz uh, made Duvid Crockett. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was, the, it was popular the, enough to, to be, to have a, a Yiddish uh, style, uh, a Yiddish lampoon of it. Well, yeah. look, look, Fess Parker got out of the business. You know, he was 49. He made up, I think he made some sort of TV movie in 1973, or he was in some film and then decided to hang up the, hang up the buckskins. And he became a very successful winemaker. He actually wanted to produce, uh, uh, he actually wanted to, you know, open a theme park. You know, he was very inspired by Uncle Walt. He wanted to open up a theme park and he figured he could still do it because, you know, uh, as much as Walt Disney owned the films that they had made about Davy Crockett, they did not own Davy Crockett as a person. But uh, I think that part of what, like I said, America was looking for, and that's part of what made him a star. I would say also in this same way, Andy Griffith, who sort of becomes a star pretty much at the same time, in the mid to late fifties, Andy Griffith uh, does some television. Of course, he he, he did the teleplay no, no Time for Sergeants. Later, made into a movie. <laughs> That's also, by the way, uh, an example of a television series that didn't go too far. No Time for Sergeants. And I think, in sort of the, what America was looking for, was pretty much something similar. Somebody who, in his homespun Southern wisdom, was able to cut through the chase. Uh, you know, here's, here's your answers. It doesn't come from necessarily the Verna von Braun sort of intellectuals. It doesn't come from the psychological takes on things. It comes from the good old American common sense that's rooted in the people who founded America and, and in many ways, the Southerners. So, so I think, you know, when you, when you compare the two, I think it's very similar. Again, Andy Griffith, I think as an actor, as he showed in, in his film that he made, um, a face in the crowd. Uh, Ellie Kazan's film that has Andy Griffith, it's it's really powerful. And if you see it, it's hard to watch the Andy Griffith show because he is such a despicable character, so duplicitous and so uh, aggressive, you know, obviously not being Teichi Kibora, as we say. But eventually, of course, what America wanted was Andy Taylor. They wanted somebody who, true, there were enough, uh, you know, of these other people around him in Mayberry, these other sort of ineffectual type of semi-Southern types. Again, only you have to realize, and this is part of my problem with Mayberry, is that although it's set in the South in North Carolina, hardly anybody speaks like a real Southerner, except Andy himself. You know, Don Knotts, who, of course, again, was able to uh, really invent that character and turn it into constant Emmys that he won playing Barney Fife. You know, he's sort of like a he's you know, he's he's not from New York, <laughs> but he's not he's not from North Carolina either. But still, Don Knotts makes the show work in, in terms of uh, the comedic engine. But still, the Andy Griffith show relied almost completely on Andy 
in a way, solving things. He might have to struggle somewhat to come to that wisdom, but we expect him to have it. Uh, sometimes it's at the expense of Barney, and sometimes, you know, Barney helps Andy discover it. But I think part of that is is, is what we see fascination with Fess Parker as well. Somehow these good old Americans know the answers. It's not the complex world that we think it is. That was an audience I think we're satisfied with. They wanted more. And that's why you have, I think, in the beginning of the of the 60s, you have these Southern, these programs that extol, you know, these Southern virtues. Well, it's true. Edgar Buchanan uh, at the Shady Rest Hotel, Petticoat Junction, isn't exactly Andy Taylor. But still, there's something about uh, B. Bernadette and the others who are part of the people at the Shady Rest, which is also some little hotel in the South that somehow... These ideals and these uh, ways, these conventions are somehow more affirming. You can make a sitcom out of it because in a way they're funny, but at the end, they represent a better version of America. Both of those shows are, are both Andy Griffith and, and Petty Conjunction have a certain air of seriousness to them. Maybe Andy Griffith a little bit more. Although certainly B. B. Bernadette's character is a very serious character, as opposed to, you know, the the adjacent, you know, uh, Green Acres. Much. Oh, more oh Green cool. Acres well, again. Green Acres was meant to sort of like to take that table that was being set by Andy and Petticoat Junction and to basically flip it on its head. Green Acres is absurdist. Green Acres has Green Acres deserves its Beverly Hillbillies in the opposite direction. I want to think the Beverly Hillbillies and the Green Acres are are very different. Again, Buddy Epson, who I mentioned before, who really had a resurgence in his career when he was in Davy Crockett, uh, was then posed uh to actually, you know, have his roles, a couple of roles in Twilight Zone, and then be pegged as the star of of the Beverly Hillbillies. Buddy Epson's character, and I would say even you can take uh, Granny and and Jethro and Ellie Mae, they are really the better people in the city. Yes, sure. they are confused. They don't know what a, a, a swimming pool is. They don't know what a pool table is, but they don't need to know that. The, the, the people that are really, in a way, you know, look down upon the people that exhibit the bad meadows, so to speak, the people that, that play the heavies, the people are, you know, or Mr. Drysdale, who's money hungry, Mrs. Drysdale, who's completely uh, superficial. You know, Jane, you know, uh, Miss Jane has a little bit of a positivity. You know, she at least has some idealism. Uh, Nancy Culp, who plays Miss Jane, really, a, you know, a, a wonderful uh, comedic performance there. Uh, but really, the Hillbillies, although they aren't looked at like the hillbillies of the 30s and 40s as just one level uh, above swine they in a certain way have homespun wisdom jed clampett dishes out homespun wisdom to simple-minded jethro you know and jethro really represents in the in in the program not being caught up in that glitter and how perhaps being warned against that you know when jethro wears his wears his his his, his jeans with a rope Instead of a belt, you know, he's a better person than when he's trying to imitate uh, the various movie stars that are all around. You know, and Ellie Mae's pristine beauty and sense is really based on the fact that she refuses to become uh, like uh, your typical uh, blonde movie star. 
And I think, you know, which in a way is once again extolling the virtues of the South, the virtues of, uh, of, of this old life that perhaps, yes, it's funny because they're fishes, they're, they're, they're definitely fish out of water. And, and, granny- and, that, and, that, and that goes back around to this Mr. Smith character that, you know, he's the fish out of water. He's the, the, the country boy who's in the big city. And, the, you know, he, I, I think the difference is the people around him. Part, part, part of the reason why Beverly Hillbillies could work is because they were willing to, you know, go for very broad laughs while retaining that essential fish out of water. The fish out of water really knows better. So you could go for these great laughs and these ridiculous things where, you know, Granny has never seen a kangaroo before and she thinks it's some sort of jackrabbit that she wants to make stew out of, right? Um, and all of that it could be done. And, 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 and people gobbled it up. And it was, you know, it was, you know, in terms of the Nielsen ratings, these programs were in the top. The, the Green Acres, on the other hand, I think was a, a show that sort of like was scratching its head and sort of poking fun at these characters and and really, in a way, lending itself, you know, to absurdism, whether it's Eddie Albert or Ava Gabor. You know, I, I think this is really shown by the the Mr. Drucker character who in Petticoat Junction, you know, well, he's, is, in, he's in all three of them. He's in Green Acres. He's in Beverly Hillbillies. He just came. He was only in the crossover. It was it was only where they did a crossover uh, on the Beverly they the Beverly Hillbillies did a crossover with Petticoat Junction. And again, yeah. part of it was to inject something into the Petticoat Junction's ratings. And they show up as well. The uh, Oliver and, and Lisa Douglas show up in that episode too, as sort of a cameo at the end. Green, again, the Green Acres really cannot be really put onto, uh, those other two. But I think my point is the, the Frank Cady character, uh, he is a different persona in Petticoat Junction than he is in Green Acres. In Green Acres, you know, his, his ridiculous quotient is through the roof. Uh, you know, he doesn't, he, he doesn't speak the same language they do in, in Petticoat Junction. He's just, you know, he, he's part of the, he's, he's the single guy who owns the, the, the general store. Maybe we can find him a wife or maybe something else going on. Um, I, I, you know, the fact was, I'm happy Frank Katie, uh, had, they were able to give him some roles to play, but I think the difference in his roles is the indicator. You weren't going to have, uh, Arnold Ziffel watching TV in Petticoat Junction. You know, it was really, it was just, you know, it was a place for Americans to feel comfortable at. They were going to take that. They were going to ride that train that's going down the tracks and they were going to stop there and they would just say, Oh, this is a fun, this is a nice place to be. I like this Hooterville. I like this spot. I like going to get a haircut from Floyd, the barber. Yeah. I'd like to be able to knock on the policeman's door and be able to, to catch a schmooze and the worst drunk in the world locks himself up every single night. That's, that, that's a, that, that's a world to sort of love to be part of. As opposed to, you know, the world's, you know, when all those shows were canceled and they, and they gave us, you know, all in the family and, and, and all these programs that really, you know, through, uh, the, you know, the, the careening big world at us, that world that I think, you know, really spelled the end, you know, Fess Parker's and Andy Taylor's. You're right. He recreates himself as Matlock and, and, you know, Andy Griffith still has a, a career, but I think the, that, cradle that cocoon that sense of safety that those characters brought them i think those those were lost so that's a bit of my friends 
Watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 